think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, huge. Not... And I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the box with Serge Negus on FBI. Massive thanks to Alex Pye for the morning of Sydney Music and Culture News. If you missed anything she played, you can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on mornings or any other program here on FBI. Now, are you adventurous? Do you like bushwalking? Maybe you've climbed a mountain with your mates or done some kayaking here and there? Well, my guest on the show today takes adventure to the next level. He is literally a professional adventurer, having set records skiing across Antarctica and kayaking from Australia to bloody New Zealand of all places. And some of you may love him, some of you may think he's absolutely mad, but either way, he's fascinating and his story is incredible. His name is Justin Jones, and in his latest ridiculous feat, he trekked halfway across Australia through the desert with his wife and their one-year-old baby. <laughs> Justin, thanks for coming on the show. Serge, mate, thanks for having me. Now, look, I mean, the first thing we've got to get into here, because some of these adventures you do are pretty much insane, right? And what is it about adventure that you love so much? Oh, come on. They're not that bad, are they? I mean, <laughs> I think it's it's all in the eye of the beholder. Um, so, I, I don't think they're insane, but, yeah, I, I get that. Uh, it's probably not everyone's cup of tea. And kind of why adventure? Um it's a tough question to try and answer succinctly, but to to tell the truth, like I don't want to be a bloke that looks back on his life and thinks about some of the stuff that he could have done. I want to think about things that I actually did. And so, if I can go about this in a roundabout way, I've actually got a bit of a regret from when I was like 17 years old. And it's a stupid thing, but I think about it every single day. And that's, um, I, tr- I wanted to audition for the school play. Like school musical, and I put my name up on the audition list up there on the wall, and I wrote my name, and I didn't turn up to the audition. I got scared, and I didn't turn up. And since then, I've just regretted that moment in my life for my entire life. So, so I always think about that when I'm tossing up a trip, something I want to do. You know, I'm thinking about saying no. That idea, that thought, that memory comes back to me, and I'm like, you know what? Shit, I've got to give this a shot. So wait, so is it the fear of regret almost that yeah, it, pushes it, you to do it? It is. It's kind of like almost like FOMO, like a fear yeah. of regret, FOMO, like fear of missing out, but not in that way where like, oh, you know, that person had a really good um, avocado avocado toast or something like that. <laughs> it's it's kind of like you know, well, what's over the hill? You know, yeah. what's what's beyond the horizon? What's at the top of the mountain? What's the view like? Yeah. So I get a little bit annoying about it. Like my wife tells me, you know, when we go out for a walk or bushwalk or something like that. Um, I can get a bit intense, you know, I really <laughs> kind of have to see, yeah, yeah. uh, but yeah, I'm working on it. It's interesting though. Like, I mean, for me, like I'd always go, you know, the reason I'm interested in it is because I love the scenes and landscapes and whatnot. And I love the idea of getting out there into the middle of the unknown, but like, I don't know whether I'd be physically capable <laughs> but, of doing these crazy things. That's but. a better answer than mine. <laughs> like, oh, like, don't get me wrong. I love all that stuff. I yeah. love the outdoors. And, and my idea of adventure is, is, is out in that kind of environment, but, um, yeah, what was the question? Sorry, I've just yeah, gone just off. Yeah, just like, why, why adventure? Like, why do you love oh. it so much? Look, it going on these big trips in particular is, mm. is a pretty honest way of actually seeing what you're made up of as a human being. Yeah. So, you go on these trips and, like, honestly, they're bloody brutal. Like, the, yeah. you get torn apart. Like, you're, you're, I lost 30 kilos on the Antarctic trip. Um, Tasman, we were battling with 10-meter waves. <laughs> Emotionally, the last trip I was on was probably the hardest because I had my wife and kid there. Yeah. And they're not easy things to do, but you work out who you are as a human being pretty, mm. pretty well. I mean, like, it, it, it's a crucible. It kind of melts down all the different elements of you, who you are, and, and what, what makes you up. Yeah. I can imagine also, like, in many ways... 
you'd feel completely removed from any of the stresses and anxieties that happen outside of your normal working life where you in your in those moments that's all you're doing that's your focus and so there's something quite clear about it right like when you're oh, doing that mate, you've just got this one goal that's yeah again like seriously you, you've got to go out adventuring like what you're saying here is just spot on <laughs> like it's it there's a singularity in this sort of like this this sense of purpose that you get that is just you can't can't beat it. Mm. So out there, all the crap in your life is kind of stripped away, and you just got to focus on the core things. You yeah. know, and, you know that's surviving, that's trying to achieve a goal, um, and that's maintaining the relationships of the people there. It's not worrying about social media. It's not worrying about the news. It's not worrying about anything like that. It's all that noise and fluff that kind of society generates is, is mm. just gone. And so it is it is amazing to have just a single purpose and just be following it. I think there's also something incredible about like being. Um, you know, the first to do something. We all celebrate these early explorers and adventurers who did things that were completely bonkers in an era where they didn't have mm. the same kind of technologies and all these, you know, adventures were done. Yeah. And so for adventurers these days, it's a lot harder to be the first to do something or to do something that's actually seen as adventurous, right? But like, I mean, you're pushing it to the extreme now. I mean, like going from Australia to, to New Zealand in a kayak with your mate is... Ridiculous. I mean, how do you decide what ridiculous thing to do? Um, honestly, they're just ideas that cro- crop up. And some, some of these ideas, they just sit in your mind and they just get hooks in yeah. and, and you just can't get rid of them. And and the idea for the Tasman, I mean, like when you say it, paddle a kayak from Australia to New Zealand, it does sound stupid. Like, <laughs> I, I agree with you there. But um, it actually came up on another trip that me, Cass, and, and my mate who I did that paddle trip with and another friend from school did. So, back when we were like 18, 19, we paddled the entire length of the Murray River. Yeah, that was okay. two and a half thousand k's over forty nine days. It was an idea that was born on that trip, and it was kind of like, well, can you imagine doing a distance like this in a kayak, but not on a river on the open ocean? And like honestly, at the time, I told Cassie, was a was a bloody idiot. I didn't want anything to do with it, and just the idea was in the back of the heads, mm. you know. And it's really hard to to say no to something that just niggles away and gnaws in the back of your mind. So that was that was why the Tasman really kicked off, and it was. Um, it wasn't a fancy, cool expedition in terms of like, you know, when you were at career path, this was, this was a passion project. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think, honestly, there was an element of, we kind of had chips on our shoulders. We were young blokes. We thought we were kind of, you know, not superheroes, but we thought we were untouchable. We were yeah. never going to die. You're never going to get hurt and all that sort of stuff. And I think that naivety really helped because if we had a better sense of ourselves, I don't think we would have chose to do it. Yeah, wow, well, that's fascinating. So, yeah. it's almost like the naivety in a way, like, can push you to a point that you're able to achieve something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. It's almost like kind of as stupid as it is, it's, it, it can actually really be a positive in giving you superhuman capabilities. Sort well, of. I, I definitely think it helps. I mean, I don't think we would have done that trip if we didn't have that brazen, not even arrogance, but that sort of naivety about what we're getting into. And then when we worked on that project, it took three and a half years of planning for that mm. trip. When uh, about two and a half years in, another person tried to do this expedition and died. Um, and so... How did that make you all feel at that point in time? Yeah. Uh, it was a pretty bad time. Yeah. I mean, it was actually interesting because this other chap, he was... he was, We actually mo- both meant to leave at the same time, yeah. like roughly the same time. So, it was kind of a race that sort of cropped out of nowhere. And then we ended up pulling... Not pulling out of the race, but just delaying a year because our kayak just wasn't working. Yeah. And so, he went out there and unfortunately, you know, he looked like all intents and purposes was going to make it. 80 k's off the coast of New Zealand, he went missing. Wow. Um, and so, mentally, that really hit us pretty hard uh we kind of you know in our head forfeited that he was going to get there first but and when he disappeared like just 
the thought about, well, is this actually worth it? Yeah. You know, you know, someone's actually gone out there and tried to do this and died. And so, and he's left his family behind. Yeah. Um, and so, like all the excitement of that naivety just wore off all of yeah, a sudden. It, it, just normal, it disappears like that. But then that's an interesting thing because we'd worked on it for two and a half years and we had all this research, all this planning behind us at that point. So, mm. we had the confidence in that enough to keep on going. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's something I want to talk about more, but we do have yeah, to get onto the yeah, music. No worries. First, the first song you brought on today, Beastie Boys, Poor Review. Why this song? I guess because this is back in my, when I was a teenager, um, I was a pretty awkward kid. And so, you know, I was shy. And the reason why I didn't rock up to that audition, I suppose, was because <laughs> because I was I was that fat kid in school and I was like wanted to do a lot of things, but I just had no confidence. And Paul Revere, uh, <laughs> that Beastie Boys song, like it was just a song from back then. And me and two other mates, we used to like rap it out and we're the biggest nerds, but just like who doesn't love the Beastie Boys? Of course not. Now, <laughs> here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with that Grab the- 
You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest here today is Justin Jones. He's an adventurer who's set records doing some pretty ridiculous things like skiing across Antarctica and kayaking from Australia all the way to New Zealand. And let's get stuck into that more because we were talking about it before the break. I mean, you were talking about where you kind of came up with the idea and, and you know, the processes leading up to it with, with this other kayaker who went missing on the trip. Once you got to that point, was there ever... Uh, maybe actually we should pull out at this moment. Uh, um, I think we had that conversation. Like we did have that conversation when uh, when Andrew went missing. Um, but like honestly, we'd done the research in the plane that we actually had this this blueprint to how we're actually going to do this trip and how we could do this trip safely. And so yeah, sure. When 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 Andrew went missing and and, and disappeared, um, there's a huge emotional hit to us, but rationally looking at it intellectually if you took the emotion out of it it was still the same plan that we we're going to stick mm. with so if you could separate the emotion from actually what we we're going to do we, we thought we still had a safe way of doing it it's just all of a sudden you are much more aware of the the consequences mm. um well, what to that because like you know for the layperson you're basically going to be a peanut on the middle of the ocean floating yeah. on there like you're you're in a kayak it's ridiculous to any normal person that just seems insane. I mean, how can you do that safely? What were the precautions that you put in place? How did you plan this? It's interesting. So, we worked for three and a half years on this trip for, for, for because we wanted to make it as safe as possible. So, having to design systems entirely about how this kayak was actually going to look, be able to float, take on 10-meter waves, 10-meter breaking waves actually out there. What kind of safety equipment should we have on there? What kind of, um, you know, redundancies we needed to have? And so, it's, it was an interesting process. And for everything that was of critical importance, we try to have, you know, two if not three levels of redundancy so that we could actually, you know, if something broke down and that was going to be a trip ender, we'd have something else to yeah. replace it. Um, the, the kayak, we put through extensive testing. And the reason why we delayed the whole trip a year was because she just wasn't working right. Mm. And so, we decided like, right, we, we don't feel comfortable, like there's too much risk. And it didn't feel comfortable in our guts when we were when we were training in it that mm. it was going to work. So, we, we had to make sure that all our fears were allayed and, and also then speak to all the experts out there mm. and get them on board. And so, once they sort of gave their ticks of approval, um, that would kind of, you know, signal to us that we were kind of ready for this trip. And so, when you actually got out onto the water, I mm. mean, run us through the first couple of days and how you felt and what the weather conditions were like that you experienced. So, so we left up from Foster on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And look, when we were on the, the dock there, you know, getting ready, there was like sort of media there, families there. Like, mum was just constantly crying. Like, leaving your family like that and the people you love and seeing them just, just, just holding together or not even really... Um, you feel like a pretty shit son and a shit person, like to put them mm. through that kind of pain and frustration. And then we, we, we once we paddled out, though, we, it was interesting. We had this flotilla of boats and, sh- and kayaks with us, and like one by one, they started peeling off, and it was just us mm. just paddling out there. And I've never felt like I was doing like 
I had this singular sense of purpose that I was doing exactly the right thing mm. at exactly the right time and we were heading into the unknown. We didn't know what the 100% was going to happen to mm. us and everything just felt right. Like it was, it was, it was amazing this sense of just, this is what I'm meant to be doing. This yeah. is what I'm meant to be doing right now at this moment, this instant. And we started paddling and it was phenomenal. The first, you know, five days of the trip, we made some huge progress. I mean, second day of the trip, we paddled 178 kilometers. Day five, we're 550 Ks into the trip. Like it was yeah, insane. And I mean, on that thought though, like you're saying that you felt like a shit son. I mean, you know, something that reminds me of is the, the protagonist of, um, of Into the Wild, you know, like this process where you, you know, I personally, when I watched that film, like I, I was frustrated because for someone who loves nature, mm. I felt like this guy used nature as an excuse to be selfish in many ways. Did you ever like have these moments where you felt like, yeah, I guess like you were doing something so recklessly for yourself and not considering those around you? Look, yeah, no, I, I do think that these kind of expeditions are inherently selfish because you do put every, everyone around you through so much turmoil. Um, but then it's also selfish for the people around you to expect you to live by their terms. Uh, and, and so it's a, it's a, it's a double barrel, you know, it's, well, it's a double edged sword, I guess there. Mm. Um, I said to my mom and I had this really interesting conversation with her because like, look, I told her about the idea of the trip and she basically said, look, if you want to do this trip, don't ever call me mom again. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. Like really. And I like, wow. I, I remember going downstairs in the garage and just bawling my eyes out and I, oh. I just couldn't handle it. But, um, I said to her when I came back up, you know, mom, you're right. It's really selfish and it's really bad that I want to put you through this. But it's on the same token, it's, it's equally bad for you expect me to live, you know, by the terms that you're dictating to me that you want me to be a doctor or a lawyer, mm. or this or that, the other. You know, she's the typical Asian tiger mom. And, and I said, I'd much rather put you through this mm. than when I have a family or dependents. Mm. So I'm sorry. I'm going to do this now in this stage of my life. It's the right time. Yeah, wow. It's so intense. I mean, back, back on to the trip though because we need to run through the, the trip. So, mm-hmm. you're 500 kilometers in. I mean, how long have you got to go? How long were you expecting to take the trip back in? Was yeah, it- we thought 35, 40 days to do this expedition and like in a straight line, it's roughly around 2,200 kilometers. Mm-hmm. We ended up taking 62 days, so we, a fair bit longer than we thought and we did 3,318 Ks. Okay. So, we did an extra 50% again and the, and the main reason for that was around day 19, we actually entered into this big two-week circle in the middle of the ocean. So, we did this big, massive whirlpool current circle thing uh, for two weeks where we couldn't make any headway and that's where we experienced some of the, like the 10-meter waves. Um, we had this storm that went for about four days and huge waves and you couldn't do anything except hide inside the cabin that we built on this kayak so describe the describe the actual kayak for us yeah so i mean like it's not like any other kayak you're probably ever going to see in your life like this thing looks like this it's a nine meter long kayak that looks kind of like a torpedo it's got this cabin on the back of it there was enough in terms of uh security and safety for shelter for us to be able to get in and hide from the waves and the storms from um but not big so we're talking a coffin and a half stacked on top of each other uh yeah lengthwise we go head down one end head down the other end our legs would overlap so Cass's legs were level with my hips vice versa and in the storms like in those big ones you you tied yourself to the floor because you were getting thrown around so much that you needed to keep the the ballast, the weight, you low in the in the kayak. Wow, wow, it's so intense. Were there ever moments when you were getting chucked around like that, like a yeah, like a tin of sardines that you felt like God, like we could just go at any moment? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There was there was one, well, one occasion in particular. Um, 
we're in the, and we run these storms with really big waves. And what we'd actually do is we have this parachute anchor. So for people that go sailing out there, I'll, I'll try to describe it to everyone. This parachute anchor, what it does is it means is this rope you throw out the back of the kayak with this big parachute that sits underwater. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it anchors you to the water. It doesn't anchor you to the ground. So like the, the kayak is, is held in position relative in that, that relative patch of water. Yeah. Uh, and what it does is it is it turns your tail of your kayak towards the oncoming wave so you don't roll down the face of them. Okay. One night, this rope wrapped around the rudder and the, meter, the, the rudder was about a meter deep. And so, all of a sudden, the kayak weighed about a ton with us in it with all our food, everything. And all of a sudden, we had basically a ton worth of weight pulling on our rudder stock. And we didn't know whether that in the storm was going to rip off the whole back of the kayak, was going to bend the rudder or what it was going to do. And so, we spent this night where we you know, put on all our survival gear told mainland Australia, told our support team what was going on. And then we just had to sit and wait this thing out. And <sighs> this this night, I mean, like when that thing was wrapped around the rudder, like it, there was this horrible screeching sound of like tortured metal. You could hear just f- protesting against like its treatment. And so, for the next like four hours, we were just listening to this going over and groaning and groaning. And, and yeah, that was a horrible night. Oh, <laughs> it was wow. a shitty, shitty night. That's such an yeah. intense experience. I can't even imagine being in that position. I mean, like when you when you have those moments of like, oh, God, like, you know, is, is this it? How do you rationalize that fear and actually get back to reality? <sighs> That's a really good question. It's... Even looking back on it now, it's kind of, I'm slightly disassociated from it, but it's out there. Fear, fear is a good thing. Fear is a good thing. Fear keeps you sharp. Fear is, I, I honestly believe when you're planning a trip, fear is a great thing. It's a tool that you should use, but fear doesn't have a place if you're going to let it overwhelm you. So when you're in a situation like that, and if you broke down a situation, it has no purpose. It, all that will do will make you make bad decisions. Uh, it'll it'll take away where you should be putting your emotional and your intellectual energy. And so, what you got to do is you got to... Oh, it's a funny thing. I used to say this to my wife on this last trip. You know, don't be scared. Just be aware. You've got to be mm-hmm. aware. You got to turn that fear into something positive. And so, yeah, sure, it was, scary. it was a scary situation, but you've got to think about the positive outcome, about how, what you can actually control in that environment to give yourself the best chance of getting through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just really comes down from years of experience of doing things yeah. and naturally sort of like getting more and more comfortable in the uncomfortable yeah yeah it's an interesting thought process because i mean for me when it comes to fear like i've thrown myself into some pretty ridiculous situations with particularly with animals like you know catching big crocodiles or catching venomous snakes and having these moments where like i've gone like this is ridiculous and it's funny how simple it is to click over that Mm. concept of fear and just go no no i know what that is and i know what i need to do to get myself out of it and actually it, it's far more simple than you think to just be able to stop for a second and come back to a rational point of view, right? Like you can actually remove yourself very quickly if you just say, no, this is what I'm doing. Well, I mean, fear is a really natural thing. And I think a lot of people try to say that they're not afraid in, in situations that they might be. And, and the thing with that is your body inherently and your mind inherently knows when you're lying to itself. And so, if you say you try to trick yourself, like accept the fear, embrace it, but just like divert it to something that's a little bit more positive, a little more constructive and mm. like you were doing there. And I mean, that's some of that stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that's pretty full on. I mean, 
I balance up the risk and reward and uh, obviously my lack of skill or skill in areas. You seem like you're good at handling things. It's snakes. calculated risks are an interesting one. Like, I think that uh, people probably um, don't take them enough, I think. And they, they probably don't trust their skill and their abilities oh, enough. De- definitely not in society like mm. today. Um, and I, I think this will lead on to, to the, the last expedition I've just been on. But... Um, you see it in the kids today, you know, the, the and the parent, the way people parent. There's too much sort of helicopter parenting where you don't allow kids to take risks. Kids are meant to get, you know, yeah. not badly, but they're meant to get hurt. They're meant to make decisions. I mean, they're meant to make decisions rightly, wrongly, because that's how they learn to become, you know, people who can gauge a situation, analyze a situation, and then make good choices. Totally. Um, you take that away from them, then they, you know, they're not making the right choices later in their life. For sure. Well, look, we're going to get onto the music again because. We're running out of time, unfortunately. But uh, look, uh, what's the next track that you've got for us today that you're going to go on with? We've got something from Chemical Brothers, maybe? Yeah, Chemical Brothers Go. Just, I think it's a... Crack of a tune. Exactly. Here it is. To the depths in your wet, so you take explosive, get it out. Send your body to flight. Everybody got a target tonight. Everybody come along for the ride. All you studs and your duds and your ladies just fly. Grip the moment like you're gripping the earth. Feel the weight and you're feeling the girth. Now you get it, now you're feeling your worth. Fitness how you used to make when everything used to hurt. It goes. Where the butterflies and where the peace resides The first five minutes for the 15 of fame Five seconds for you saying my name I'm deadly sharp shooting the game Gonna hit you in the soul, execution is aim Get together and we building a fire Clear smoke and it's taking us higher Hands up, everyone is one If you see yourself making it, you see in the sun Metropolis on the edge of control They take our money but they won't take our soul Fuck that, ain't gonna do it no more Won't do what we told and we ain't gonna fall We go no time to rest Just do your best What you hear is not a test uh, We're only here to make you 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 Go! Everybody jumping out of their mind. 
Listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is uh, Justin Jones. He's an adventurer who's done some pretty ridiculous things in his time. Very fun, very out there. He's, he's living his life. We can say that, that's for sure. Now, uh, look, we just talked about the, the first adventure that you went on that really pushed the limits, which is this incredible kayaking trip where you went from Australia all the way to New Zealand and, you know, made it, which is ridiculous. But you also then, the next big thing you went and did was that you, you skied across Antarctica. Now, t- tell us about that trip and what the whole aim was for that trip. So, yeah, Cass and I, same bloke from the kayak trip, we decided to ski from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole and back. And what would actually worked out is in, I suppose, the entirety of polar history down in Antarctica, no one had actually ever done that under their own steam. So, people had, you know, relied on uh, dogs to pull their, their supplies or wind assistance, so using kites or other people or motor, motor sledges or tractors. Mm-hmm. And so, no one had done that under their own human power. So, we're like, right, yeah, let's give that a shot. And- it's a bold thing to, to kind of pick to do because 15 months before we headed down to Antarctica was actually the first time we put on skis. Mm. So, oh, okay. we, we didn't, <laughs> didn't know how to ski. <laughs> so, how did you practice for that then when you didn't uh, know how to do it? Well, look, so, I mean, 15 months out, like, we was the first time we put it on and, like, I'm... I'm I honestly believe you should never let the lack of skill stop you from chasing a dream or a goal. And so, yeah. what we did is we worked out what we kind of needed to do, what kind of um, in order to become competent skiers, and then we went about just ticking off the boxes, mm-hmm. like going out there, getting all the experiences, experience that we needed. So that first season we had down in the Aussie Alps, we basically I don't know, we skied every single weekend down there, did three day weekends, and and became competent skiers by the end of that three months. We're never going to be pretty skiers, but enough to feel comfortable going to the back country. Mm-hmm. On cross-country skis and skiing for, you know, three or four days. So, you know, you, you, you work out what you need to do and then you just make sure that you hit those targets. Yeah, yeah. And so, the trip itself, I mean, like, how did you actually figure out a, a route to go on, like, on this trip? I mean, like, is obviously, it's not just, a, is it just one flat piece of ground all the way for the trip? Or is it, you know, you got to go got to go uphill a bit, downhill, the crevasses? Like, I mean, how do you actually organize a trip like that in Antarctica? So, so Antarctica is, um, yeah, the South Pole actually sits around 2,800 meters or 2,900 meters. So, it's roughly 500 meters higher than Mount Kosciuszko. Uh, we start at sea level. So, we push from the coast up to the, up to the, up to the South Pole, yeah, up to the South Pole. <laughs> and we were pulling sleds away at about 160 kilos each, so really heavy going at the start. And the first two days, we had like six, seven, or 800 meters of vertical incline. So basically, like, picture driving around the plains of Penrith and then up into the Blue Mountains. Yeah, so we yeah. had, when wow. our sleds were the heaviest, it was the hardest going. Wow. Um, which is just the nature of the trip. But uh, in terms of picking the route, 
you know, we, we did take a route that other people had used in the past. So we did have some good info and intel mm-hmm. about that. Um, and I, it really gave me a bit of an insight into the explorers of yesteryear. You know, the guys who had no intel, they had no satellite photos because we could tell from the satellite photos where crevasse fields were, where the hard parts were going to be. Those guys, they went into the blind. I mean, it was mm-hmm. kind of like, right, we're going on a trip. They tell their families on the docks, you know, see them, see you later. And they might see them again in three yeah. years time. That's insane. I mean, what were some of the kind of sketchiest parts on that trip? Like, were there any moments that things got a bit dicey? Yeah, yeah, there were a couple of times. Um, day two, uh, Cass popped into a crevasse and sort of dropped down probably in waist deep in one. That was pretty not good. Um, luckily, we were kind of on that slope, so his sled kind of held him in position as he fell yeah, uh, okay. because of the weight of it. So, that was probably the one of the only times we were happy we had heavy sleds. Uh, <laughs> In the middle of the trip, you know, things started going badly. Um, again, Cass got uh, folliculitis, like he got a, a groin infection, uh, skin infection down in his groin. Wow. That basically meant he couldn't walk for two days. Oh, um, and we had like horrible, horrible weather conditions where we had a foot and a half of snowfall, so we could barely make any progress. We had constant whiteouts for two weeks straight. And so, like, we were going really slow. It looked like the trip was kind of impossible. Mm. Um, and on the return journey, so we, we skied to the South Pole in 62 days <clears throat> and we only had 27 days to ski back before the final plane fly of the season. <laughs> God. And and so we had to hammer it and that's where we really started dropping a lot of weight. So over the course of that whole trip, I lost 30 kilos wow. and Cass lost 26 and I'm that, that wasn't pretty from the perspective of I, I, I was in particular starving. Like I started at 106 and ended at 76 and that's too light for my frame. And so you were starving though. That, that, that's oh. what happened. It's not about the physical exertion. It's like you just like well, the food wasn't nutritious enough for well, you. It, it was not that it wasn't nutrition enough. It, it just wasn't, it just wasn't enough. Like yeah. we're burning because around, you're burning. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're burning around 10,000 calories a day. So that's yeah. like the equivalent of like 20 Big Macs. Um, <laughs> and we'd planned on taking 6,000 calories worth yeah. of food a day. So we knew we were in deficit. So that's why I fattened up for the trip. But then there was a certain point where every second day we had to drop to half rations so suddenly you got a deficit on some days of around 7,000 calories so you're burning through the weight and you know I if I can go there you know (laughs) at the back end of the trip I was my body wasn't working my guts were starting to shut down you know I was I was going to the bathroom and passing blood at times you know it wasn't it wasn't pretty and if I I think if that trip pushed on an extra week or 10 days I don't know what would have happened wow Mm. It's so hardcore. I mean, like, and then what about like frostbite and stuff? Like, did you guys get frostbite? We didn't get frostbite. We got its like younger cousin or brother, which is frost nip. And so basically, frost frostbite is when your flesh freezes and your flesh starts dying. And so that's where you see those awesome photos, well, horrible photos <laughs> of, of people yeah. with black fingers and all that. Frost nip is where you kill the nerves. It's the constant getting really cold, too cold for your hands, and then warming it up back and forth, back and forth. And what okay. it does is it kills your nerves. Yeah. So we didn't have any feeling in the lower two thirds of our fingers um which makes it really hard to do things yeah Yeah, because you can't feel things yeah that's so hardcore and i mean then how does it long does it take to recover from from putting your body to that extreme (laughs) okay so as a team we lost 56 kilos worth of weight after two weeks we had put on as a team 20 kilos of weight 18 of that was me Wow. Like, honestly, I put on 18 kilos in two weeks. Wow. Uh, yeah. What yeah. were you eating? What were you doing? Like, was like it- I was just, I just couldn't stop myself. Like, I've been wow. starving for so long. And it's something that, you know, they had to worry with, like, with prison of war victims from World War II. Like, yeah. it's called refeeding syndrome. And, like, suddenly I had access to, like, food <laughs> as much as I possibly wanted. Yeah. And, like, I just ate, you know. And wow. so, it, look, there was a lot of other things going on, like glycogen levels, like muscle stores were really low. Um 
I put on in the first three days when we got back to the base down in Antarctica where we finished our trip. I was 76 when we finished. Three days later, I was 88. Wow. It's- That's wild. Crazy, isn't it? It's amazing. I, I never realized that you could put, yeah, I guess, weight back on that quickly. Neither did I. Yeah. You know, I, I was searching for a six pack and I only had it for like a week. I wonder what that says about like, you know, if, say if you're going through like a bad breakup or something and you know, you spend a bit of time on the couch crying, eating ice cream, like, does that mean like you could put on weight like- that and like you know if, you, if you're just going through a moment of grief or like you know if you just have a binge and you blow out and have a you know christmas you know how much are you gonna put on over christmas oh man i can put on like <laughs> seriously if you want to put on weight come live with me for a while like, oh, i can eat like the best of them and it's, it's constant battle for me but i mean yeah yeah you do you can <laughs> well amazing stuff so look we're gonna get into the music again the next song you got for us is it a bob marley track you got for us or what are you gonna play? yeah three little birds what just- does this one mean to you I just love this song. I mean, like, it's uh, the meaning behind it in terms of, like, everyone's kind of, like, color doesn't mean anything. Everyone's everyone, you know, everyone, people's people, you know. There's no difference between us all. And just, I think what adventure does for you is it strips away, you know, you're just a person out there trying to do something.
you've been listening to Out of the Box FBI Radio, my name is Serge Negus. My guest today has been Justin Jones. He's an adventurer who has, you know, put his life at risk, gone and done some ridiculous things like trekking across Antarctica and kayaking from Australia to t- all the way to New Zealand in a tiny little coffin-shaped boat, basically. Um, but look, mate, the last trip that you just did, the one that you've just returned from, is, I think, probably more interesting than the others in respect to, I guess, the kind of philosophy that went into it. You just walked halfway across Australia with your wife and your daughter, who's only about one years old. I mean, through one of the harshest deserts in the world, you know, in some of the craziest environments with a baby. I mean, some people would think that's absolutely bonkers. What was it that drove you to want to do that trip? Yeah, there's a a lot of reasons why. Um, Long story. I'll try to keep it brief. I, I was planning a trip to go right across Australia, um, off track, hunting and gathering along the way. Uh, I've been pl- like that had been in my head for a long time, and you know, then I got married, and my wife and I decided to have a family and started that process. And when our daughter was born, I lost a lot of psych. Mm-hmm. Like I, I started thinking about, well, there's an adventure happening at home, and I don't want to miss that. Yeah. And so. In my head, I mentally shelved the trip, but I was still saying to people I was going to go do a desert trip. And my wife saw that, I think, in me. And, and so, she she threw out something to me and said, well, why don't we do a trip together? Why don't we do a trip as a family, an expedition? And I was like, oh, geez, I love you. Like that, that, That's just <laughs> like the most amazing thing. And so, she wanted to explore, you know, the, why I do these expeditions and get a, get a bit of a glimpse into that. And also, um, to have that unadulterated time as a family together. I mean, like you don't often get that 24-7 for over 100 days, we're going to be together. Mm. Um, and so, what we tried to do is like the first, I'm not saying parenting is easy because parenting is not. It's, it's the hardest thing you can actually ever do in your life. And... Our, our life wasn't easy when Morgan was first born. Like, it was just really tough that first three months in particular. Like, she was pretty sick with, you know, like reflux and allergies to different things. And so, it was for us, it was kind of like reclaiming it back our lives and also seeing if we could merge an adventurous life with a family life. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge element. Like, I don't, I have these random skills. Like, I do some random stuff in my life and I'm not like, you know, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an investment banker. Like, I don't have a particular set of skills. I have mm-hmm. a lot of, random ones and so what i thought you know the best thing i can actually give to my daughter is to help her build resilience and you know a love of nature and connectedness and so i think one of the best ways to do that was actually go out into the outdoors with her Mm. and it's amazing to see how much she's grown over the course of this that expedition and the little girl she is now she's she's a pretty cool Wow, it's interesting. Like, I, I was I was born in the bush, and like I've got this innate connection to the bush because of the fact that I was born there. Mm. In, in my eyes, I believe that like wholeheartedly, and like I, I, like I think that is because of the early connection that I had to the bush. Basically, I mean, like, what was she like when you were out there on this journey? Like, you know, out in the dust in the middle of nowhere like how did she perceive the whole thing well it's crazy i mean because like i think as adults we, we worry about kids and like in that regard and you know about exposing them to different things but kids are so resilient they are so adaptive i think she adapted to this expedition better than my wife and i did so for her the sense of normal because we're questioning well is this right should we be doing this is this normal mm. and in reality to our daughter normal is anywhere that mum and dad are Mm. And so, this became her new normal. And it's insane. At the start of the trip, she, you know, out there in the outback, you get these massive thorns all over the ground. They're huge. These, these like, bindies on roids. And, like, she's walking around in her shoes and these thorns just go straight through her shoes, you know, oh, in, into, into her feet. Oh. And so, that, she, she just started walking a week before the trip. <laughs> so, she's there 
they're walking in this environment that's like sand, it's like uneven, there's all these thorns and stuff, she'd fall over into them. Oh. And and like, so initially she'd be like, ah, you know, crying and, you know, you'd pull them out, have to give her a hug. After a couple of weeks, she just lifts up her foot and just says, ooh, prick, you flick it out and she keeps running. Like, she's she's a tough little wow. nugget now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just to see sort of her, her connection with nature. So... A big thing in the outback is since there's not many trees in certain areas is when you find a tree, like you try and schedule your breaks around that so you got some shade. Yeah. To see her kind of at the end of our breaks say bye-bye to the trees and hug them because they were <laughs> like so important to us actually out there um, was really awesome. And she, she's also learnt patience in a way because nothing's quick. You have to cook everything on the fire. Mm. You know, she wants some milk. Um, then we have to heat it up, you know, boil some water, you know, make it up. It's it, everything's slow. So... It forces you to kind of take your time, her to take her time, and also just ground. Were there any moments where I was like, you know, I mean, like, you're out in this harsh environment. Like, how, what were the safety precautions, like, with a child that young, like, yeah. out in the middle of the desert? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. So, we had to speak to all the right relevant people before this trip. So, make sure that her pediatrician was happy. Speak to the RFDS, so the Royal Flying Doctors uh, Service. And one thing we had to do was just change the way we did the trip so that, you know, I really wanted to go cross-country the entire way. Mm. And then realizing, you know, that isn't the safest thing to do with a kid. Because you want to, if something goes wrong, you need to have access. So, trying to stick on or near four-wheel drive tracks or and also know sort of every sort of situation well where you're going sort of where the nearest point of access or or the nearest plane you know plane could land and then how you could actually get from the point that you are to that landing strip where you can get emergency medical support um snakes was the biggest worry because mm-hmm. you know the consequences of her getting bitten by by brown or something like that are, are really really big i wasn't so much worried about my wife or i because you know with prepar- pre- pressure immobilization bandages and stuff like that you can keep an adult calm mm-hmm. in a situation like that and don't get them to move you can't rationalize that with a child mm-hmm. so approached as much of the risk as we possibly could um beforehand you know worked out what the plan of attack was but then when we're out there it's it's stressful without trying to, like, you know, helicopter parent her, like mm. making sure the areas she's playing in are kind of, you know, you've checked for snakes as much as you can, spiders, you keep her out of the areas that you think they're going to be highly prevalent. Mm. Um, but you don't want to stifle her from doing things. So, it's a, it's a fine line. Wow. It's a tough one. I mean, it's one that most parents like these days don't even go anywhere near though. They're the opposite. They're these helicopter parents like you're talking about. I mean, how have... Are the parents that, you know, perceived this trip and this journey? It's an interesting one. I thought there'd actually be a little bit more um, negativity towards it, but there's actually been a lot of support. So, for the most people, you know... (sighs) Especially the parents that are sort of going through the thicker things, they, they kind of look at that as a bit of a bit of like incredible, you know. They they wonder how the hell we did it first of all because they're going through it at the moment, um, and kids are tough. But I mean, like it's hard enough to get out of the door. You might as well chase something you, you're passionate about, um, and. The, the, the biggest, I suppose, criticism, some people say, you know, oh, no, it's reckless. Um, they shouldn't have done this, but they don't know my background. They don't know mm. the kind of mm. work that I put into sort of planning and risk mitigating. Sure. Um, one thing that's an interesting one is people say, well, what's the point of doing it when she's, you know, one years old? She's not going to remember it. Mm. And, you know, all right, she, she probably won't remember this. She won't have memories from it. But. Sub two, you lay down the pathways, uh, so 80% of your neural pathways, like how your brain deals with certain situations and stimuli. And so, I know that this trip has impacted on the way that she deals with pain, the way she deals with frustration, the way she deals with, um, you know, when she's hungry, when she's tired, and, and she's been able to adapt to these situations a lot better than she could have in the outdoors. And that connection with nature, the one that you had when you were growing up, mm. 
I grew up in the jungle when I was sub two and I don't remember it all, but it's part of my story. And there's something about the jungle, like in Indonesia, that, that means so much to me. And mm. I don't have memories from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating thing. I think, like, I mean, how are you going to extend on this, you know, with her? Because she's probably going to expect so much now. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting one. So, like, we've come back and we, we, we've raised an outdoor kid and we live in a two-bedroom apartment in Bondi. So, it's pretty tough. Uh, we're exhausted and she just wants to get out there and play like you wouldn't believe. She's an outdoors <laughs> kid. Um, look, we're going to have to keep on sort of doing these things and immersing into nature, going on camping trips and stuff like that. I think we've got another couple of trips planned for the future. Like, mm-hmm. we'll maybe take a year off in terms of a big trip. But, you know, there's there's other ways of, of moving around. So, like, try and explore, like, sailing, you mm-hmm. know, doing doing things across oceans or a long cycle trip with it would be pretty amazing. Um, yeah, we, what we, are you thinking? So, what are your what are the trips that you have on the radar then? What are the future trips for the Joneses? Oh, we've we've got this 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 family goal and dream of wanting to live overseas for a point in time, and um, Italy is is the idea. It's like go over there and and work and live in Italy for for a year and then sail back, okay. which would be pretty cool. Wow. Um, and look, there's some stuff in Australia. There's mountain ranges that I really want to explore. So it's kind of like how do you, how do you transport a child um, and all the gear you kind of need through a mountainous terrain, like through through the sort of the Flinders Ranges, actually in the peaks, rather than sticking to tracks where you can actually have a cart behind you. Because the yeah. cart that we pulled behind us, or that I pulled it behind me, was weighing up to 270 kilos yeah. at its heaviest because um, of all the water we needed. So. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ideas, and and one thing we know for sure is if we have a second kid, we've got to do another trip because it'd be pretty rude to like <laughs> take Morgan on this epic yeah. hundred day trip and the other kid just down to Jamboree. You know? Yeah, <laughs> doesn't quite doesn't quite work. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, Justin, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today and hearing about all these crazy stories. I'm sure a lot of people are inspired, and hopefully they get out there this uh this summer and go do some crazy stuff like yourself. Um, but look, it is time for your last track. The the last song you brought on for you for us today is it's an old classic, man. This Latigra Decepticon. When did you first hear this, and and why have you brought this on? Oh. Geez, I had a lot of mates that were like DJs back in the day. And so, like, I think it was just in those, back when the cross was the cross, you know, mm. we'd go out there in the uni days and just, um, this is a song that I don't know, I'd always try to do that, mimic that high pitched kind of voice, you know, we better, no, I'm not, I'm not even going to do it, I'm not going to do it, sorry, I just clammed up then. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it just reminds me of back then and just, you know, I've seen some mates recently that I hadn't seen in a long time and just that, the song popped up, popped up in my head. For sure. Well, yeah. thank you so much, mate. Now, look, it's an incredible story. Here's La Tigra and Decepticon. Big thanks to my producer, Nicole DiPaolo, for helping me put this one together. Uh, coming up next is my Billick with lunch, so stick around for that, and uh, I'll be back next week. Ciao. Who took the bomb? <laughs> Oh, my God.